Hi, and thank you for joining us. I'm Haley Baumeister, and I'm a digital marketing and communications consultant at the Housing Innovation Alliance. In today's episode, you'll get to listen in on a conversation between Alliance President Dennis Steigerwalt and housing panelist Jerry Mr. Offsite Migaki. This episode will be broken up in three segments, the first about process optimization, the second on advice for adopting innovation and offsite work, and the third, a call to action on how companies can utilize the Alliance's resources to better their building strategies. Let's listen in. I don't think there's any real reason for, for concern if you talk if you're comparing it to, to the likes of 2008. But I definitely think that we're experiencing a period of time here where builders are going to have to learn to sell again, as opposed to being order takers, which I think is really what they have been doing for the last number of years. So we're now back to the stage of, yeah, every customer counts and I'm going to have to sell to them. It's not just, yeah, you'll be lucky to get the house from me. It's now I have to sell to them. I was reading a report recently that said builders are paying more for the labor on site and getting lower productivity. It's like stagflation within the labor pool on the construction, on the on the actual job site itself. That to me, is a real problem. You end up paying more to get less. That will translate its way into, into costs overall. And you know, and when the market's tight with interest rates rising and people are a little bit more lean on what they're willing to pay for a, for a house, that, that's, that's an issue. Um, and I think it's probably one of the issues that everybody's known about the construction industry, that you know, productivity has been an issue for the last number of years. But it's, I think it's actually getting worse now. But the idea that you just simply throw people at the problem to solve the output issue with rising costs, that's a very, very dangerous game. And it really says something about the builder's strategies going forward. I mean, you really have to be asking yourself, how do you increase your output and not increase your costs? Well, that's through increased productivity. How do you increase productivity? Continuing on to do the same as you've been doing for the last 10 years is not the way to do that. You know, that old mantra of that's the way we've always done it. This is when that's going to get really challenged. I've heard builders talk about, you know, they've had strategic lists that they spent years getting better at a dozen things in their business. And now those dozen things, as a result of the pandemic and the, you know, kind of the way in which the teams were integrating with each other and the speed at which things had to be executed, they gave all 12 of those back. Longer cycle times being one of them. Talk about productivity on the job site being another. I'm curious if you have thoughts on how long it takes us to get get all that back that we just gave up. And it's, it took us years to get it. And what's that expression? And things go up slower than they come down. So pulling them back when you let go of them is going to be a harder job. It's not just a simple clicking your, clicking your fingers. But it still goes back to this, to use that expression. I mean, this idea of that's the way we've always done it is the problem here. What you're talking about here is process optimization. And I think it was either Autodesk or Procore quite recently came out with a report that said approximately two days in every five on a job site is wasted by every worker because of incomplete drawings, inaccuracies, and bad design, lack of information, wrong materials. I mean, I'm not making these up. These are these are independent reports coming from where you, whether it's McKinsey, NAHB, Procore, Autodesk, whatever. I don't want to say it's the problem. There's the opportunity that exists within the construction industry. There is absolutely a major opportunity in there to take the cycle time down, not just recover the 30 days that maybe has been lost through the pandemic, but actually bring it way down below that. And I can give you real examples of, of for what it's worth, I mean, we, we converted, I can remember being involved, we converted a builder over from stick framing to, to off-site. And we went through the whole process with him and said, listen, if you want to take advantage of this, it's not just a matter of looking at how I can reduce the direct framing time. What we're going to do here is by using off-site construction, we're giving you a key. We're actually giving you the key to unlock profit that you can't get at otherwise. The direct framing cycle time reduction was clearly everybody can see. You can see it. I mean, we just reduce it. 
is seen. That turns the key halfway, but you can turn the key the rest of the way. And you can actually take down another close on 15 days out of the process. If you plan in advance, in other words, you change your internal builder processes to take advantage of what offsite brings you. And primarily what you're talking about there is the scheduling, the accuracy, the quality on site. The benefits from offsite construction come from the two sides. They come from the physical side of seeing the frame itself go up quickly, but it also comes from your ability to change the way you schedule everything else that goes into that house and pull them all for condense it. It's proven. So in that case where I was only that builder, he took his framing time down on the very first house because we had walked him through it said, this is what you want you to do. This is how we want you to have all this materials ready to go. And he took the cycle time down from 105 days to 57. Wow. Talk I about mean, schedule compression. With, wow. With no, <laughs> and I mean, with no effort. All that they did was order the stuff early. Not because, and it's not that they couldn't have ordered it early before, but they wouldn't do it before because they didn't trust what they were going to get in terms of their framing. There's an Irish newspaper that has a strap line that says, before you make up your mind, open it. I think that's part of the biggest problem that people come into it with these preconceived notions about what it's going to be or how it'll work. They think they know about it. If you really want to become more flexible, improve quality, improve productivity, lower cycle time, improve your 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 sustainability credentials. Come with an open mind. Don't come with these 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 absolute hard and set facts that you think this is the way it should operate. The other thing I would say to a lot of, if builders are really serious about this is there is a theory that goes around in the US says, you know, not invented here. In other words, if it wasn't invented in the US, it didn't exist. Let me tell you, I'm 40 plus years, my family's 60 plus years in the offsite industry. It's been done before. I would nearly encourage every builder and I think it's well worth their while and maybe this is something the Housing Innovation Alliance could do and I know you do do things in this is take builders and actually Walk them around, meet builders. And I don't mean now, I don't mean it's necessarily in Germany or Austria where a lot of them go to because they have a different they have a different model in terms of the way homes are built. They're not generally done by production home builders. It's more quasi-custom homes on individual sites. But Britain and Ireland pretty much similar to the United States in terms of most of the homes that are delivered, although it's not the same volume as here, but most of the homes that are delivered are delivered by national production home builders. If you go and you talk to them and you see how they operate, how they run their off-site side of their businesses. I think most people here would be genuinely shocked that it would upturn most of their thinking on how they approach the job site. I want to switch gears a little bit. You know, there was a, a conversation we had started a few weeks ago about a, a post that you had uh, put out there regarding uh, kind of the quote unquote, the cart before the horse, putting the cart before the horse in in, in context of in investments in, in factories and machinery. What I'd like to do is, you know, maybe you could just retell that story a little bit. I know that I went, went off like wildfire, right? It was kind of all over social media, receiving a lot of comments. So I, I think that ties back to the, the process conversation quite a bit here. So I just wanted to make sure we hit on yeah, that. I think at the end of it, it had 225,000 views and, and I think nearly two and a half thousand comments on it. Wow. So it obviously, it obviously touched a, a, <laughs> there was a sore point, but it actually <laughs> obviously touched some sort of point with people within the industry. Yeah, um, and I think most most of the people were were in agreement with it who, because I think there's a lot of people like myself, both in the United States and around the world, that, that understand if you're going to go into this business, going out and just simply putting equipment on your factory floor is not going to make you a successful offsite company. That's a bit like I use the analogy of Formula One racing. If anybody understands Formula One racing, you you know there's two identical cars. They're absolutely identical. They're owned by the same team. They have the same tires. They have the same fuel. They have the same aerodynamics. They're absolutely identical. But both cars don't cross the line at the same time. But you're 
both cars, let's call them pieces of equipment, are identical, why don't they do exactly what they're supposed to do? Why don't they just finish at exactly the same time? And obviously the answer is because they've both got different drivers. Right. So, and the, think about in this situation, the driver is the software. He's the designer. He's the, determining how each one of the levers that are in that car are utilized in what order, what way, that determines whether or not that car finishes first or second relative to his, to his teammate. So what I've seen in the US is over the last four or five years are people interested in the offsite industry. And I'm saying this genuinely because I want people to, in the industry to be successful. But I see people going out and spending large amounts of money on very high tech, sophisticated equipment, mm -hmm. thinking that that's the solution and not figuring out that that machine will only do what it's told to do. And the last thing that they think about doing is to, is investing in their design, automation, their, their software and their people at that end of the business to make sure they can get the maximum amount out of that automation. And then when they discover that, they're probably a year and a half of a delay before they're ever going to get anything out of that equipment of any use, because that's the length of time it's going to take to get that optimized. And so what I've seen is people in this market seem to have an easier time investing in two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine million dollars worth of automation on their factory floor, but can't get their head around the fact that they may have to invest two, three, four, five million dollars. Well, that means just say a couple of million dollars in perfecting their software and design automation in order to get the maximum efficiency out of that software, out of that, that uh, factory automation. And that's what I mean by putting the, the cart before the horse. They go out and they buy the hardware before they ever bought the software. And the software is actually what tells the hardware what to do. Put another analogy, it's a bit like going out and buying the, the, you know, you go out and you buy your car, but you forgot to put the engine in it. So it looks great sitting outside your house, but it's not going anywhere. Right. And that's the same as putting that you know, whether it's a Swedish or, or German automation sitting on your factory floor, right? It looks great. It's not going to do anything. Or if it does, you know, it'll, it'll be suboptimum in terms of in terms of its output. Keep saying that the machinery will only do what it's told to do. Now, when you understand that, you realize because you're, you're, you realize where the efficiency has to be gained. Because when you look at when you look at putting in automation on your factory floor, really what you're saying to yourself is, I want to have high quality, high output high efficiency in terms of my manufacturing. So let's focus on the word efficiency. In order to get that machine to do anything, you've had to send a file to it, which has had to come out of some software with some people sitting designing it. That's the most important level of efficiency that you have to gain because you have to make sure you can continually send accurate files to that machine and you don't want to be overspending your time and money producing those files. So you need to make sure that your software has been tuned to maximum performance to provide the information to the equipment for you to get the efficiency on the factory floor. But it won't work the other way around. There's two aspects to that in, in, in your, your design department, your engineering department is you have to make sure that people are trained as efficiently as possible. And that's that required rather requires investment and you have to make sure that your software is invested in or customized to give you what you want but also to give you maximum efficiency because what a lot of people also don't realize is the software out of the box is not really much use to you there's a lot of work that has to go in i don't want to call it programming in some cases it is programming in other cases it's just building up the information the detailing that are specific to your type of manufacturing but you have to spend the time doing it in order to get it to send it to the equipment efficiently because you don't want to be replicating things over and over again so efficiency of your design and engineering department in my opinion is more important than the automation on the factory floor think about it this way anybody with money can go and buy the automation on the factory floor mm -hmm. anybody you can all of us can 
can go to Randick or Weinman or anybody else and say, I want that piece of equipment. And they will be more than happy to supply it to you. They put it on your factory floor, you can buy it. You turn around to your design engineering department, try to produce the information to drive that machinery. Not everybody can do that. Right. That's the hard part. It's not what you know that you don't know that catches you out. It's what you know for certain that isn't true that catches you out. And the problem is when you when you start to get into that software design engineering, getting the people trained up, finding them, literally just in this current market, finding those people is a difficult task. But even when you find them, getting them trained to the correct level, that's a difficult task. And then add to that the fact that your software has to be customized to give you maximum efficiency. That's a lot of time and money and effort to be able to do that. And that, and this is where some of the horse, the horse before the, the carpet for the horse, that's in my opinion where most of these companies that invest heavily in automation fail. They didn't understand that it's the efficiency of the software that's more important than the efficiency of the automation of the factory floor you've got to be able to feed that beast on your factory floor as efficiently as possible there's a lot of time and effort and work needs to go in, in there and it just seems to get missed i'm listening to, to automation suppliers tell me that they have lead times now of upwards of two years to supply automation from europe into the offsite industry in the united states and i'm wondering where all the people are who are going to drive this automation because nobody's making investments in that side of things they don't even know where the people are that is the dilemma here there really needs to be a focus on 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 developing those people to allow you to drive and get the benefit of that automation on the factory floor. Yeah. So I mean, building up that talent pool, though, that, that's that's incredibly important. I guess the good news is with three year lead times, they have plenty of fine, plenty of time to go out and find that person and get trained up, right? Well, the way I said is when, when my experience of it is, I mean, you, you don't really get the benefit of experienced people until they've got a lot more years than that under their belt. There's a dramatic difference between, uh, let's just say, somebody who has 10 years' experience providing files to Randick or Weinman Auto and there is a guy who's got two or three years. I mean, take that from somebody who's been at this a long time. There's yeah. a dramatic difference. Even the two to three years will not give you really what you really want. But again, there's a ways around it. I mean, I, I think that if you're going to invest in that level of automation, in my opinion, the first thing that anybody in the United States is going to do is actually go and put an advert in all the European newspapers saying, I want to bring somebody with experience over to the United States, whether that's for a year or two years or three years. But to think that you're going to do it internally from scratch, you are really going to burn money. It's not that easy. Certainly to get off the ground, it's not that easy. And that's where I'm, where I'm saying that, that the cart before the horse. Invest in your people and your software before you invest in the automation. I'm, I, what I'd say is I'm I'm delighted to be part of the Housing Innovation Alliance, and I think you guys have done a great job. And I think you're you're an incredible resource to the industry and those who who are interested in truly learning about about offsite construction. And so, when you asked me before about what to do, I mean, I think that really what the industry should be doing is is making contact with you guys and asking for your help independently to say like. What do I need to do here? Who, who can I send you to, to to learn a little bit more about this? And you're a truly independent voice that has no vested interest other than trying to find better ways for builders to build things. So, I mean, I think that that's genuinely what, what I would say, Dennis, is just keep up that good work and let everybody in the, in, the, in the construction industry know there is an independent resource they can go to that is the Housing Innovation Alliance, to find out more about how to take advantage of offsite construction. Thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast. Don't forget to look out for future podcasts, as well as check us out on LinkedIn and the Housing Innovation Alliance website. Thank you.